Miracy. There's an aspect of leading that's inherently human in the sense that from an evolutionary point of view, humans have succeeded as a species because they have been able to collaborate with each other in groups and large groups in ways that other species have not been able to. I'm Sharon Richmond. Welcome to To Lead is Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large. I help C-level executives expand their impact, clarify their priorities, energize their organizations, and build cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we help you envision how to supercharge your leadership by introducing you to leaders who lead with intention. I talk with top business leaders who exemplify the principles of leading large. They know that as leaders, the significant influence they have comes with an equal measure of responsibility. These leaders not only deliver stellar value to their customers, clients, and stakeholders, they prioritize building organizations that provide purpose, meaning, and a healthy work environment for their employees. We get to learn from the challenges and successes they've experienced on their human journey. My guest today is Tito Hubert, an experienced product executive who recently led product and engineering at Convoy, the leading digital freight network, and prior to that at Amazon. Earlier in his career, Tito was a consultant with Boston Consulting Group, earned his MBA at Stanford and his engineering degree at the Instituto Tecnological de Buenos Aires. Tito is originally from Argentina, so no surprise, he's a huge football fan. Tito now lives in the Seattle area with his wife, three kids, two cats, and one large grill. As Tito and I talk, listen for his insights on leading large cross-functional product launches, how he's adapted the best of Amazon's big company culture to his own leadership at Convoy, and how working with an executive coach helped him adapt his leadership style to that new situation. Welcome to the show, Tito. I'm so grateful to have you here with me today. It's great to be here, Sharon. Fabulous. I saw that you recently described your time at Convoy as the most significant leadership experience of your life. So let's start there. First, what does Convoy do and what was your role there? And then what made your years there so special? Sure. So uh, Convoy is a digital freight network. It's basically a two-sided marketplace that connects uh, shippers, which are companies that need to move around stuff over the country with uh, trucking companies, which are companies that have the capacity to move those goods around. And the interesting thing about freight, it's, it's a very fragmented industry. On the shipper side, you have hundreds of thousands of shippers. And on the trucking side, you have literally millions of trucking companies. You can have companies that have tens of thousands of drivers and trucks, and you can have mom and pop companies that have one truck or two trucks or three trucks. So what Convoy does is using technology, we have an app, you allow any trucking company to connect with any big company creating efficiencies in the, the marketplace. It's a super interesting space. And it sounds like a lot of heavy data analytics. Lots of data analytics. and It's a feast for data scientists and economists. Um, and there I led uh, one business line called Convoy Go, which was a new business line that was uh, introduced on top of the standard uh, business line. 
This business line included owning a fleet of transportation assets. These are trailers. They're the boxes that you see tied to the trucks on the road. And it was fascinating because it was building kind of a, a physical leg of a business in a, in a pure tech uh, company. And uh, I grew that from the beginning to kind of a very sizable portion of, of the business four years later. Um, and I think in terms of complexity, it had, it had the product complexities of, okay, we need to buy these or lease these assets, uh, put sensors in them, do automatic writing, all that fun uh, say product and technology side. But there was also an interesting organizational transformation part, which is when a new line of business comes to a company that has existing lines of business, there is natural kind of rejection. And there's a process in terms of how you help the rest of the organization assimilate this new line of business, because eventually you need buy-in from the whole company to do it. And this is a process that it has taken multiple years. Uh, and well, luckily at the end, like we were successful in terms of growing this business. That made it kind of intense. But the other thing that made it intense is the last three years have been crazy for the world in general, like with COVID, with the turn in capital markets, with, with all the shifts in business. Plus supply chain in particular was uh, deeply affected. Like two, three years ago when COVID hit, like supply chain got to a halt in terms of there was just not enough capacity to move things. So it has been a, a really interesting uh, time to, to grow this business. Yeah, so that's fascinating. Thanks. So give us a little picture, like a little glimpse into the, some of that intensity and what guided you as a leader in managing all that chaos, the whirlwind of drama? The interesting thing in terms of guiding not only myself, uh, but also uh, the rest of, of the organization is what was the vision of uh, this product and how could it help not only the company uh, make uh, money, which is always good, but also what was the impact of this business in, for example, small trucking companies, uh, savings in terms of carbon uh, emissions, and also uh, helping the economy through uh, making a supply chain uh, more, more efficient. I think what was important in this journey to kind of motivate and align stakeholders within the company and beyond is articulating all these benefits that we were bringing beyond just a pure bottom line uh, impact, which was obviously uh, attractive but not always enough to mobilize organizations. Yeah, and it's what you were what you were bringing to the market was probably representing a really big change for some of those organizations that you were making the market for. Absolutely. Uh yeah, the it, it, it was interesting because this mode of uh, doing transportation which was what my product did which is having trailers to preload them is something that has been done for decades by big trucking companies, but small trucking companies didn't have access for that because they just don't have the capital to build these fleets. So by building these, in some sense, we help democratize the access to these type of businesses and allow these small companies to be really efficient, almost as efficient as the big trucking companies. So that probably made some positive changes for some of those drivers. Absolutely. And I think that was one of the most fascinating parts of the, the, the job. You, you would uh, connect with uh, these uh, populations and, and really get a sense of what was the impact 
on these small companies. And that was like super, super gratifying because they were very thankful we would make their lives easier and we would allow them to grow their businesses in, in ways that, that was not possible before. And interesting bringing together this sort of trucking industry, which is, let's just say, maybe not very sexy, and this high-tech data-driven approach to solving problems and bringing product. I can imagine it was probably an interesting culture clash. It was. Interestingly, I see trucking is a little bit beyond other industries in terms of tech adoption and sophistication. Um, it's a population where it is interesting how you create empathy with these uh, population, which is a super important aspect of product management. How do you put yourself in the shoes of your customers, understand their needs? Because that's the only way that you can really develop cutting edge products. And we would have to go above and beyond to create that empathy, getting over the phone and talking to the truck drivers, getting out of the building and riding with the truck drivers, seeing what was a, a day like. It's fascinating uh, into, in terms of how to enter into that world. But the thing that was super interesting is one would think that these are not sophisticated individuals. They're super sophisticated. Like you talk to a truck driver, own an operator, they own only one truck. And inside their heads, there are a spreadsheet. They know everything. They know how much they spend in fuel. They know the inefficiencies at empty miles drive. They know how much money they need to reserve for uh, other kind of unexpected expenses. They know how much they should charge. They are kind of really, really tuned optimization machines. And they embrace technology because it helps them do their work uh, better. I love that you've discovered that diving deep into empathy with the customers really helps you obviously deliver products that work well for them. How did that extend into the way that you're leading your, your product teams? An important part of my philosophy is that one of the most important predictors on whether products are going to be successful in, a, in the company is the distance between the builders of those products and the customers. Let me explain that. When a company is small, and let's say you have one, five, 10 people, customer empathy happens naturally. Like you have six engineers, one salesperson, one product, they are all in the same room. You talk to customers, you go into the, that kind of happens organically. But then companies start uh, growing and you start having complexity. And instead of 10 people, you have 50, 100, 1,000. Uh, then you have layers uh, and rather than talking directly to the customer, you need to go through a UX researcher, through a product manager, through a salesperson. And it, there is a point in a company where uh, people that build the products uh, have not talked or seen customers and they are far. And that is dangerous because you start operating with abstraction of customers, not customers, which has a lot of noise because someone in the company six layers away, talk to the customer, and that information progresses through six people, and then the engineer gets it. And the engineer is the one that, that builds the product, and that is kind of a challenge. So something that's super important for me in terms of how I drive these insights into, into organizations is what are mechanisms to decrease that, that distance? And in the extreme, I want the builders to have had direct exposure to customers so that they understand their needs directly. And one interesting insight also is sometimes this empathy happens naturally, for example, in companies that build products for consumers. So, for example, in Amazon, I used to manage the Amazon credit card. So my engineers are credit card users. So that's easy in terms of developing empathy. 
the farther that the persona that you're building is from your own reality, the more difficult to produce that empathy and the more important is to create those mechanisms to reinforce that and to make sure that you don't lose uh, that customer centricity. So maybe can you share a story about how did some one of the engineers develop this empathy and how did it affect them? Yeah. So ideally, you want people to have direct exposure to customers as frequent as possible. That's not always uh, scalable. So we have to create a kind of mechanisms, some that are direct and some that are indirect. So an example is we would have visits to the shipper facilities, meaning where the action happened. And we would bring the engineers with us so that they would see the real world that they would see, okay, oh, here's the truck, here's the driver, here's how they come in. Oh, these are the issues that they have. We would kind of have them go into the truck. For example, that the truck was coming into the facility, we would ask permission to the truck driver and we would tell them, like, do you mind if I hop in with you? And they would go in and spend a couple of hours talking to the truck driver, both about work, but other things. That kind of direct interaction is something that produces kind of an, an immense level of empathy. It's also funneling other information that was uh, relevant. So for example, we would have them shadow our internal operations team. We would give them uh, access to the research that we were doing and so on. One other one that was super fun for me going into tracking is uh, getting into communication flows of real truck drivers. So we would get into Instagram or Facebook groups and basically be part of the group to see what are people talking about. And it's very telling because you can get like through these social networks, a, a real sense of the temperature, the mood, the reality of some of these populations that are different than yours. Yeah. So, and then did you also notice that this focus on empathy for the customers translated into how you lead the people on your team or how you manage these complex cross-functional activities that are required when you're developing and launching a product? When managing these uh, cross-functional teams, the complexity increases further the larger the organization is and the more functions that you have. And the coordination that needs to happen in terms of, at the beginning, you're a small team, but eventually you need to coordinate with uh, operations, supply, marketing, kind of product tech, other teams, and, and so on. I say in, in this uh, front, I think what's important is for people to know what are the core stakeholders that they need to interact with. And it cannot be everyone in the company because that just doesn't scale. It's a many-to-many -many problem. So focus on what are your key kind of stakeholders or partner. Understand what's important for them and how you can collaborate. And that's both through, I say, coordination mechanisms, as well as through development of relationships to make sure that you understand what are the needs, incentives, and objectives of your key partners. Mm. So just thinking a little more about this, if I were to ask one of these large product teams to describe your leadership, what do you think they would tell me? What kind of leader are you? They would say that I'm honest in the sense that I say what I think and I bring kind of as much information as I have to the table, even if in some cases it might be detrimental to me. So that is definitely an important part of my leadership. 
Then the second one, I say they would say that I have high standards, meaning in sync with my honesty. Like if I don't think that the standards are being achieved, I'm going to push and tell people that that things are not hitting the mark. And the third aspect, which I, I think is interesting, is I, I do lead with humor. I like using humor and it, it allows me to get away with the first two, with being direct and having high standards in a way that without humor, I think I would be considered abrasive. I'm very good at reading the first order signals, but not very good at reading the second or third order signals in terms of when people kind of have second intentions or use sarcasm or kind of, and this is, I think, because of me, I think EQ wise, I'm focused in the direct information and not in the other. And also because I didn't grow up in this country, I'm a native Spanish speaker. If I speak to someone in Spanish, I can catch way deeper signals than in English. So I'm pushing for, 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 I say, very objective and as honest as possible conversation. And that's why kind of I'm being intentional in terms of that, I say, honesty and directness and, I say, an ambiguous information flow. Because if I don't operate that way, I miss things and I'm not successful. And so there must have been some moment when you realized that was a little bit of an Achilles heel. When did you first become aware of that? How did you come to your choice about this transparency approach? I would say this started to be evident when I started scaling in terms of teams. Like it was fine when it was me and perhaps a small team of 510. But then beyond that, uh, I would notice that things uh, fell through the, the cracks. And I had to kind of shift to be kind of, I say, more intentional in terms of my communication style. That makes sense. So it's a good transition. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how your leadership evolved at Amazon. How did your leadership change or how did you adapt that, that big company culture to this smaller company, more fast-paced environment? And I guess I'll add one more element to the recipe here, which is I know Convoy is very focused on the culture of the organization, so maybe you can uh, compare, contrast a little. What was leading at Amazon like? What did you take from that? What did you bring over to Convoy? What didn't translate? So I spent uh, almost nine years in Amazon, and uh, Amazon is a fascinating place. Uh, Amazon is, is a huge company today, like million, million, point five employees. Uh, for the size of company, it is pretty uh, fast-paced. Amazon pushes to to use that culture uh, along the whole life cycle in terms of when they hire, when they manage performance. Even in the day-to-day, it's very kind of present. And Amazon has been able to scale kind of its complexity through a lot of very good mechanisms to operate and develop technology. And Amazon really, really excels excels at, at that. And my journey there was was very interesting in terms of growing from, I started like being an individual contributor and I got to manage teams so up to 150 there. It's all about how you scale through mechanisms in Amazon to basically broker organizational complexity and information. You have information all over the place. If everyone has access to all the information out there, that's a mess and it doesn't scale. So how you create the right mechanisms for the right information to get to the right people so that they're really efficient. It's not that you're hiding the other information. They always have a chance of accessing everything, but you point them in the right direction. When I joined Convoy, it was a small company, 300 people compared to 
the million point five in, in Amazon. So the adaptation there twofold. One in terms of scale, meaning a lot of the mechanisms that were present in Amazon, they were just not necessary in a company like Convoy because a lot of the coordination was organic. So I had to learn about how to adapt everything that I did in Amazon to Convoy and just eliminate a lot of things, like do a lot less coordination, which is one of the great things about early stage companies. Like it's less heavy in terms of coordination tax and one of the things that that I like the the most. But uh, the other interesting thing was how to adapt my culture and my MO, meaning a lot of things that that I did in, in Amazon would just be considered off in other companies. So for example, in Amazon, it's perfectly fine to be very direct with someone and say, hey, I think this is wrong. This metric is going in the right direction. What are you going to do to fix it? And in Amazon, that kind of line of interrogation might be considered fine. Now, in, a, in other companies, that would be considered kind of abrasive or, or, or aggressive. So the thing that I had to figure out is how to keep some of the good things from Amazon, like the honest inquiry and the desire to push with, for higher standards with a different uh, kind of set of interpersonal dynamics. So for example, when I moved to, to Convoy, I still kept my, I would say, intellectual aggressiveness in terms of that desire to, to get the truth, but complemented with a more with a softer or say touch in terms of how the content was delivered. So I would say, hey, this metric doesn't look right. And I would preempt. I think it doesn't look right because A, B, C, D, and I think we need to fix it because if not, this thing will happen. And then would move to what are we going to do to fix it? And in, in that meaning, in Amazon, like that whole thing that was in parentheses was tacit and it was fine not to say it. But here, you need to say it. So the communication was slower, but I had to learn to adapt to how the company operated. That's great. What kind of blind spots did you discover in yourself when you got to Convoy in terms of how you were leading other people? Can you identify anything that surprised you about how you were leading and what you thought would work and then it just didn't? When I joined, I had my inertia in terms of, in my mind, I was still operating in an environment that was a different size and complexity. So for example, we had to get work done in code that was managed by our team and code that was managed by other teams. And I kind of, I I approached my engineering partner and say, okay, how do we get this done? Like, who do we need to influence? Uh, What, where can I see their priorities, their roadmap? Kind of in a little bit of a, like the the politics games, like, okay, who who do we need to influence? What are the dependencies? How do, do we get these prioritized? And the guy looks at me and says, well, what are you talking about? Like, we're going to send our engineer and do the work. Like, we don't need to do all of that. We control that. And yes, like the, meaning the engineering team was like 100 people, not 100,000. And it was a completely different environment. But it was kind of one of the things, oh, yes. But that kind of reminded me that there's not just one way of operating, meaning you have your MO and the way that you operate, but you have to adapt it to the environment because the environment might have some of those uh, requirements and, and sometimes it might not. Yeah. So what did you learn about yourself? And how do you think that's affecting your, you know, as you're thinking about going forward, how do you think it's affecting your thoughts about leading? I think specifically in Convoy, the thing that I learned the most is about scaling through people. 
the learning there is in Amazon, there's a lot about scaling through mechanisms. Then that has a lot of good attributes. But in some instances, it can be a little bit of an autocratic leadership style. And what I learned about myself is that that is a good mechanism to scale up to certain size. And then it's like you are limited to, to the coverage that you can have in those autocratic decisions. And Convoy, even though smaller company in terms of people, the number of things that I had to take care of were, were way broader than in Amazon. And the thing that I had to shift in terms of my style there is how to empower some of those leaders that were under me and let go the detail and do more indirect audits of their work rather than being in the trenches driving those decisions. I, I remember it was a lot of fun at the beginning. I realized that and I told my boss, hey, I think I should get a coach to help me with this and so on. So we get a coach. We did the kind of uh, an assessment at the beginning and then we had a kickoff meeting with her and my boss. And so we laid out, so we want to drive more empowerment to the bottom so that kind of I can free my time and scale better. And, and my boss was like, no, 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 don't change that. I love that about Tito. Like, I, I love that he has good judgment and that he gets into it and he, he makes all this. Don't, don't fix him. Don't change him. So we, we had to go into <laughs> this kind of interesting discussion between my boss, my coach, and so on about the, the pros and cons and where did I want it to end up from a leadership point of view. And what did you decide? I went forward with that process and significantly changed my, my style. It took like a year and a half, but I went through a, a very intentional journey. And at the end, kind of, I think I, I got to a point where I felt good about the end state. Uh, I did free up time to do other things and focus more on lateral relationship. Uh, building and strategic thinking rather than flawless execution. And I kind of left the flawless mm. execution to my team. So I know a lot of leaders listening to this might be wondering, like, how do you do that in a remote environment and without it feeling like you're micromanaging your managers? Do you have tips for people on how you, or maybe just some stories of your own about how you did that in this middle of this pandemic, in this all of a sudden remote work environment? That was definitely challenging. I, I'm someone that benefits a lot from in-person human interaction to develop uh, relationships, uh, in particular with like key people like uh, peers and kind of direct employees. So mm -hmm. that was tough. The things that I did is whenever possible, try to kind of generate those in-person uh, interactions. And whenever not, like, do kind of uh, Zoom and remote as frequent as needed and stay close. And I think the thing that has been challenging for me in this remote environment is how to stay present in the sense of now people are kind of in this kind of infinite concatenation of Zooms, ADD from messages and so on. <laughs> and I really feel that like when we're having a meeting, especially if it's a meeting of like 20 people, not everybody's present. In fact, these days, most people are not present. They like their video is off. They're, you know that they're multitasking and so on. There is a meeting, but people are not present in the meeting. So how to create kind of environments in which people can be present is super important. Like, and I try to be very explicit. Dude, like if you're in the meeting, be in the meeting. Like if this is not a good use of your time, drop. 
like and, and kind of do something else. But if we're here, we are here. So that's great. Tito, the title of this podcast, as you know, is To Lead as Human. What does this mean to you as a leader? And particularly, what aspects of your own humanity have you learned to embrace in your leadership? There's an aspect of leading that's inherently human, in the sense that from an evolutionary point of view, humans have succeeded as a species because they have been able to collaborate with each other in uh, groups uh, and large groups in ways that other species have not been able to. So in some sense, the fact that there are kind of leaders of uh, packs and people that are not only willing, but that they uh, kind of have appetite to be led is something kind of inherently human. The, the thing that I think about is th there are things that are human, like, like walking, it's natural. And some things that I might be unnatural, like skiing, like skiing is not natural. You have to learn it. I think that humans are learning to lead at large scale, meaning it's natural for us to lead in groups of five, 10, 50, 100, 150. But uh, kind of going beyond that and leading organizations of a thousand, ten thousand, a million, or countries and so on, that is when you need to start learning to to ski something that might not be natural. And it's an extension of something natural, uh, but something that we need to learn. And in terms of what have I learned about my own uh, humanity, the thing that I've, I've learned is how to fit in the puzzle. I think it's natural for me to think. How am I a leader uh, within my own kind of team organizations and so on? But also, how do I fit in the bigger picture? And not only how I lead, but how am I led and how my style not only impacts my team, but also my peers or, or apps so that my organizations are as effective as they can be. So what's the challenge that you've learned? What, what have you learned to overcome in yourself? I think... The, the main challenge, I would say, is adaptability. I, I like to do things in a certain way, and that's definitely easier when you have the authority within your team. It's not always easy when you operate with other teams or other peers that might have a different style than you. And I think learning, how can I still be honest and authentic, but at the same time adapt to other people that might be different than me and how to navigate that trade-off between authenticity and, and, and being adaptable is, is something that, that, that I'm still na navigating, to, to be honest. Yeah, no, I think that that's, first of all, I think that's very honest because most leaders are still working out how much of myself do I bring? What parts of myself should I be able to adapt? How willing am I to express vulnerabilities and when and why and is it beneficial or not so uh, any reflections on that yeah th i think that's super interesting the authenticity and kind of honesty i like a phrase that says that the the mood of a leader is like the weather of an organization meaning if you are upbeat like people are going to be upbeat if you're downbeat, people are kind of not going to feel uh, great. My approach there is kind of to, to try to be kind of upfront. Like if the situation is not good, like, be, hey, guys, this sucks. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Like the situation is bad because of A, B, and C. But there are other reasons to, to kind of be uh, optimistic and so on. 
and present a balanced view. Mm. I think if you just present the positive outlook and not the truth of what's happening, that can also uh, backfire. Yeah. And how have you found when you're that kind of blunt about things sucking or things not looking very hopeful, how does that affect your team, do you think? What, what does it do positively for your team as opposed to just the sugar coating? I think people appreciate kind of true and honest information about uh, the situation. And even if it's not kind of completely positive, they appreciate kind of knowing uh, about the situation. I think people like to know where they stand and they like to understand the context and the situation. And I feel that sometimes that is what organizations miss. They don't fully give the picture to people on, I don't know, the macro situation where the company is or even where people is. And when that's the case, people have anxiety because they just don't know where uh, do they lie. And I think even if um, kind of the news are not great sometimes, just like having an objective understanding on, on, on where the situation is uh, gives people comfort. So at least I know. So I, I don't have to second guess. And because when people start second guessing where they are, that is a recipe for disaster because everybody starts like talking with hypotheticals and so on. And at the end, there, there's like people are not operating with objective truth. Yeah. And I think also one of the things I often describe to people, if you don't say what is going on, people will fill in the blanks themselves and it will never be accurate and it will usually be worse. So better to spit it out. And absolutely, like you said, give people the sense of confidence that they can trust the words of their leaders. So I always like to end Tito with asking like, if you could offer one piece of advice for other business leaders who want to build workplaces that are more fully human, what, what would you advise to our listeners? I think specifically in this point in time uh, with remote and hybrid work, we, we can get to like a, a point where like work is very dehumanizing. Like in the sense of you, you interact with screens with other people that you never met or just by email or just by Slack and so on. And uh, it's difficult to, to connect with other people as humans in those situations. I think it, it is critical more than, than ever to try to reduce kind of that distance as much as, as possible. And also in the same way of what I was saying about being honest and bringing information to the table, that's important now more than ever because a lot of organic interactions that you took happen in the in-person world where there was a lot of information flowing, that doesn't exist and you should not assume that it exists. So it's, it's, it's more important now more than ever to try to uh, bring as much information as, as you can to the table so that people know where they are. And this is both in terms of like what's happening in the company, what's happening in other areas, and also how people are doing. Because before they might have interpreted by kind of talking to you on the hallways and so on about how things were going. Now people just don't know. You just have like a half an hour per week with the, the other person. That's it. Uh, so it, it, it's more important than ever to have that inf information flow being efficient and for people to feel comfortable in terms of where they are. Yeah. And it's hard when you have just that 30 minutes to balance the relationship building time with that urgency to get to the task. So I think that's something that a lot of leaders are really experimenting with. 
to see what's the right mix there of investing in the relationship versus focusing on driving task. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. A big thanks to Tito Hubert for our conversation today. Tito, I know listeners will want to find out more about you and any plans for your next adventure. So where, where can people go to learn more about you? You can go to my LinkedIn page, like Tito Hubert, uh, search for me, and I, I, I post every now and then uh, updates on my whereabouts. And people can count on updates that have to do with pigeons as well? Absolutely. Like pigeons are a core part of my knowledge intake. So for those of you that have no idea what we're talking about, you'll have to go follow Tito and learn more about the impact of pigeons on his future planning. So thank you, Tito, so much for coming on to the show. It has been lovely to reconnect and to talk about your journey. Thanks, Aaron. Please keep listening as I share with you some insights from Tito and some next steps you might take on your own leadership journey. Hi, this is Sharon. I'm popping in just before the takeaways to remind you that as an executive coach, I'm always looking to support new clients. If you or someone you know might be looking for an executive coach, head over to my website, leadinglarge.com, and you can book a complimentary appointment with me. In the first 25 minutes, we'll be able to identify a challenge you're facing and talk about whether I'm the right fit to work with you. I look forward to hearing from you. One thing Tito highlighted for us is the importance of developing deep empathy for your audience's day-to-day -day experiences. He clearly describes how important this is for product design and for engineers in his organization to really empathize with their end users. And it's just as important, as he pointed out, to be able to empathize with your employees as you're thinking through how they can organize their work. For a deeper dive into that discussion of designing jobs, you might want to listen to our first episode with Dart Lindsley. Another thing that Tito highlighted was how important it is to have an authentic leadership style that fits your needs. So in his case, recognizing English as his second language, he decided it was very important to be very explicit and open with people to minimize the chances that either they would misunderstand him or he might miss some clue or signal of the second-order messages that weren't as directly shared. By doing that, he made sure that he could be comfortable in his leadership style, and then he also learned how to adapt that style as needed for the individuals that were reporting to him, as well as in the new environment that he worked in. The third thing, and maybe the most important to highlight, is that like many senior executives, Tito realized that he was going to have to significantly up-level the way he was leading his team. He couldn't be involved in the details the way he had once been. And in order to really let people run with and produce what was needed, he had to truly empower them to run their parts of the business, make decisions, and come to him when they needed his support. Instead, then, he was able to focus his attention more on lateral relationship building with his peers which is one of the main ways that he was able to build support and influence in the organization for his very new product line. And it also enabled him to focus more on longer-term strategic thinking. If you, like Tito, are moving to a higher-level position and you want to really think about what should be different, 
I offer you this suggestion. When you want to delegate work to one of the leaders that report to you, don't just toss it over the wall. Don't just say, here's what I need you to do. Go figure it out. Instead, spend some transition time with them, guiding them first so that they understand your thinking, and then coaching them so that you can understand their thinking. Once you each develop the confidence and skills needed, when you fully delegate that authority, you won't be tempted to dig all the way down into those details as you once did. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead is Human. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G large.com. To Lead is Human is part of the Mercy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Jeff Govertson assembled the episode. Danny Eaney is our executive producer and post-production is provided by Post Office Sound. So you don't miss upcoming episodes, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And hey, if you learned something useful today, please take a minute to leave us a review, star it, and tell your colleagues about us. The more leaders we can reach, the better for everyone. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you the next time on To Lead is Human. Miracy. I'm Molly Mahoney. I'm Danny Eaney. I'm Virginia Mooskies. I'm Melinda Cohen. I'm Dave Lacani. I'm Michael Port, and you're listening to Making, Making it. it. You would think that when you hit the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, you would feel like you made it. For me, it never has. I think making it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you. Making it is about having time to spend as I want to spend it. Making it really is about being free to live according to your own genuine values and priorities. It's about acceptance. Not only like making money, but make a difference. Make a contribution. contribution. Like feeling like I'm making a difference to someone. And I don't think making it is a one and done. I think it's an ebb and flow spiral type of pattern. Making it, to me, really means being able to bring your whole self to the table. It's really a choice that you make every day. Because the truth is that you do not really know what you're doing until you get started doing it. I'd say that the first seven, maybe eight years was like pushing a boulder up the hill. If there's anything that I could say to my younger self, I would say, really? Like, for real, for real? Trust. I would tell myself no shortcuts, no shortcuts. The path is always in front of you, even if it's not clear. The key is to keep moving forward. Everything requires work and effort, no matter how much you love it. You've got to find something that you love, something that you enjoy, so that your work is not a labor, it's not a chore. Don't compare yourself to others. But recognize that if you see someone else doing something that is of interest to you, you can do it also.
I had this sensation of, I kind of felt like the walls were shaking and I just felt like, that's what I've been doing all this time. That's who I am. In that moment, I knew who they were. I knew the burdens and distractions and I knew full potential. And then I ended up ultimately in the ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame as a Johnny Appleseed for taking the sport out to the world. And so I just said to myself, you have to give this a try. If you don't give it a try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have done it. The water is always changing and your comfort with that doesn't come from knowing that there is no uncertainty coming. It comes from trusting in your competence to handle that. I like to say, don't emulate, elevate. That's how you're going to make it. Making It is a weekly podcast brought to you by our team at Miracy. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most anywhere else podcasts are found.